This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Craig Kopp. Reporting an effort to soften the language of the so-called don't say gay bill was unsuccessful. Can we, can we find a way to modify the language in such a way that our neighbors in this room don't feel harmed? Apparently not. An amendment to the Parental Rights and Education Bill was rejected by the Senate Appropriations Committee. House Democratic leaders still scratching their heads about two redistricting maps. We've never seen anything like this. It's unprecedented. Dems still have major issues on redistricting and the budget. The pandemic has changed our world. How are you holding up? A lot of these things are just really um, creating uh, some increased pressure on individuals. And we see that across the board on the behavioral health side. Sunrise talks with the Florida Behavioral Health Association about what the legislature can do to help people deal with their emotional health. And maybe we should card people to make sure they're old enough to run for office? But first, the Parental Rights and Education Bill had its last committee stop in the Senate, and opponents who call this the Don't Say Gay Bill had pinned a ray of hope on an amendment to be put forth by Republican Jeff Brandis. It would change the language in the bill, taking out sexual orientation as a subject not to be talked about in kindergarten through third grade, and replace it with sexual activity. The Brandis Amendment failed. The bill was passed by the committee and now heads to the Senate floor. The public testimony Brandis referred to ran the gamut. Democratic Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith tried to provide public testimony in opposition, but was rebuffed by committee chair Republican Kelly Stargell. Supporters like Anthony Verdugo of the Christian Family Coalition said the bill is simple. The purpose of schools is simple, and we all know it. It's to teach reading, writing, arithmetic. It is not to teach sexual ideology. There's been a lot of misconceptions here about what students can and can't say. Tinker versus Des Moines is a U.S. Supreme Court case, precedent setting in 1969 that assures that students enjoy free speech rights. Therefore, this bill cannot impact this. This bill does three things. It impacts curriculum, lesson plans, and third-party speakers from initiating conversations based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Kindergartners should not have to hear that there are 47 different sexual preferences or 100 different sexual identities. The reason we're here, it's not about child safety, it is about parental rights. Parents are not the problem. Parents are the solution. So let's give them some credit as well. And I just want to close by saying that the reason we're here in part is not just because of January Littlejohn, but because of the Perez family in Clay County, Florida. So the senators who asked what happened, well, they filed a lawsuit against Clay County because their 13-year-old child was going through gender confusion. And she attempted suicide, not once, but twice, two days in a row. Then they notified her parents. The parents should have been notified first. They were having secret meetings behind the parents' back. That is unconscionable. And that's why we need to vote yes on HB 1557. Opponents like Lakey Love of the Florida Coalition for Transgender Liberation said the bill's not simple at all. Um, we have grave concerns for what this bill will do to transgender and in particular non-binary students um, who use they them pronouns or alternative to binary pronouns. Any discussion in the classroom 
of these children and safety procedures that would need to have have to happen in order to protect these children from bullying, from further discrimination, not just by this legislative body, but by parents, administrators. Um, just this session, I brought a group, we brought a group of transgender youth to the Capitol. And I have to say that most of you didn't get to talk to these children because we did not want to put them in front of people that would call them abominations and treat them like they were wrong. So those of you that did hear from these students, thank you for listening. Um, we also had to hide the dates because the anti-trans movement is so strong that we felt that these children's lives were in danger. So I just wanna say that if you are here to protect children, and we heard that um, a couple people who are in support of this bill think that this bill protects children, then you really want to protect children, you want to protect all children, and you will stand against 1557. You will not create more government and a long arm of the law with a special magistrate in the Florida Department of Education, and you will protect kids for being who they are and where they should feel safe is in the school system as well as at home. Democratic Senator Jason Pizzo argued that singling out sexual orientation is, at bottom, hateful. Let me just say this. It must be said. If there are people who honestly believe that you choose to be gay, well, then you would also have to accept and believe that millions of people choose to be abused, to be bullied, to be ridiculed, to be told they're different, to be cast aside. And I will tell you from many of my LGBT friends growing up, they just wanted to be like everybody else. They did not choose to be gay. They would have loved if they were celebrated by their parents and their family members the same way that heterosexual relationships are. They would have loved to have made that choice. You would have to believe almost in a masochistic kind of situation where they chose to be abused and treated differently on purpose, by design. We have a bill that's basically sat stale since, since February 8th that had no analysis from the Department of Education who promulgates these standards. And I just let's say this, why are we picking on people? Why are we single, singling out and picking on someone's sexual orientation or gender identity? Here's what I do know. Happy Americans wish others well and to each his own. Happy people in their soul, if they have a happy soul, wish everyone to be happy and enjoy their lives. When you single out people, there is a deep, deep, deep sense of hate. But the bill's Senate sponsor, Republican Dennis Baxley, said hate is the furthest thing from his mind. I want every child to prosper. I want every child to do well. And I want every person to. This is not grounded in hate. This is about organization and the core family and parents being in charge is the best way forward, and even it is not flawless, as many of us know. But please don't go here thinking, here's a guy who hates everybody. I don't, I love everybody. There's nothing you could say. Love is totally, totally without question as to wh about what you do or don't do. It, I love you unconditionally. If, it, if it's not unconditional, it's not love. 
I'm not loving people because they did what I wanted. I'm loving people because there's an order by which we learn to appreciate and do that. And I'm of a deep conviction, if the parents aren't in charge, we are not going to ride in the right, we're not going to wind up in the right place. Proponents of the Parental Rights and Education Bill were in charge of the Appropriations Committee. The bill is now on the way to a full Senate vote. The legislature really only has two jobs it has to complete this session, approve a budget and approve a redistricting map. Both have yet to be completed. At its weekly Zoom meetup with the press, House Democratic caucus leaders provided updates on how they think the work is going. Minority leader Evan Jenny talked about the budget, figuring that conference meetings are going to start real soon. Uh, I would have to imagine this next weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, uh, that will come into play. Uh, Everything, every indication I've seen is that it will be done on time, Uh, whether or not it's a budget worth uh, supporting that will get worked out in that conference, because there are a lot of significant obstacles, I think, to getting unanimous support on that budget, like we've seen in past years. Um, So there's still a whole lot of work that needs to be done to that budget. Uh, It is the largest budget in our state's history, bar none. Um, So we would like to see some basic things taken care of. Uh, Some other things taken out that that, uh, you can say it's not a penalty all you want, uh, but that $200 million penalty for selected school districts uh, is is one that that we need to see out of there in order to garner widespread uh, support. Representative Fentrice Driscoll took on redistricting, still marveling at the fact that the House Redistricting Committee came up with not one, but two maps last week. We've never seen anything quite like this. The rationale, as best I could uh, relay it back to you, is that the leadership on the redistricting committee was looking to all the totality of the circumstances, looking to what the governor has done by interjecting himself into the conversation and proposing his blatantly unconstitutional map, considering that there might be litigation down the line. And so I think that the leadership on the redistricting committee thought, well, maybe if we introduce these two maps, we can avoid the possibility of the court taking initiative to draw its own. We can let the court know what the intent of the legislature is in drawing the secondary map. Problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, Again, we've never seen anything like this. It's unprecedented. So we're not sure if it will pass muster with the court. Governor Ron DeSantis says he will veto any maps that include some unconstitutional districts. In his words, that is a guarantee they can take that to the bank. With time starting to run out on the 2022 legislative session, people are eyeing areas they think can be addressed like mental health. The CEO of the Florida Behavioral Health Association, Melanie Brown-Woofter, says the pandemic has not only been a real strain on the emotional health of many Floridians, it's also made people more willing to ask for help. She told Sunrise she's hoping the legislature will make moves to get them that help. Well, you know, in the last few years, we've been living with the pandemic. And now as we start to emerge from that and move forward, We have people who are um, experiencing uh, uh, symptoms of mental illness, whether it's increased anxiety, depression. You know, they're living with loss of loved ones. Um, They are slowly returning to their pre-COVID activities. Uh, Many have had a loss in job or a change in job status. Uh, So, and uh, we're dealing with, you know, higher prices in the grocery store. 
And a lot of these things are just really um, creating uh, some increased pressure on individuals. And we see that across the board on the behavioral health side with an increase in people either calling our crisis lines or presenting for services at our community mental health and substance use treatment providers. I think we all feel it. Uh, um, I think we all feel changed somehow by what happened. Um, And the the pressures all seem different. Um, But is your concern that there aren't services available to a certain part of the population that really need the help? Um, I think there's a concern across the board to be able to meet the capacity of this increased demand, um, whether it, it, regardless of economic status or insurance coverage. So whether you have Medicaid or you have private insurance, we are seeing that more people are actually coming in for services now and um, we have to have the professional staff to be able to meet that need and have those services available. Uh, you know, over the past years, we've been um, faced with the great resignation where we see um, uh, individuals with lots of professional experience um, opting to take an early retirement. Um, it takes a while to grow the pipeline to get new talent um, into healthcare, into mental health and substance use services and, and across the board. And I guess the silver lining to all this is that we're seeing a decrease in the stigma related to mental health and substance use. So people are actually reaching out who before the pandemic would not have reached out for help. And so we're able to to somewhat turn the tide to show that reaching out for help is a strength, not a weakness. And but that also contributes to the need for an increase in services. That's fascinating. So uh, there's an opportunity here but we might not have the professionals in place to take advantage of that opportunity. And that opportunity being people go, I can ask for help. Absolutely. And so it's not just having the professionals, it's having the programs in place and looking at some innovations and in how we um, contract for services and pay for services and what services are available. So this Um, is an opportunity uh, to get more people into care and to actually innovate how we provide mental health and substance use services. And one thing, you know, we haven't talked about is the opioid epidemic and the increased use of substances. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing, you know, an increase in overdoses, many of which are accidental because the drugs are laced with fentanyl and and people didn't know. We're also seeing this as um, our usual means of support and, um, uh, you know, and help locally uh, sort of evaporated during the pandemic. People were having to spend a lot of time alone and they were turning to substances to be able to uh, help themselves through this period of anxiety and depression. So we're in a legislative session. Um, There's a lot going on. Do you see uh, the Florida legislature addressing this um, in any meaningful way, I think what you're advocating for is that uh, community mental health, uh, substance use treatment providers um, uh, who are uninsured, underinsured, you know, the whole thing, um, that they have some place to go. Is there something the legislature can do? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, thank you for asking that. So the legislature certainly um, can address this on, on several different, um, it was several different approaches, one of which the most obvious is the budget. And so we certainly would um, advocate that the legislature consider an increase in the Medicaid rates for mental health and substance use treatment. Those rates have not been increased since 2001. And we all know that costs have increased since 2001 for, for everything, for uh, utilities, toilet paper, um, you know, groceries, the whole nine yards. Buying a car costs more than it did then. And, and so, you know, our rates have not kept up you know, with those increased costs. So certainly on that end, and then, uh, you know, to look at it also from the unfunded or the underinsured um, uh, portion of the budget as well to be able to uh, put some resources to um, be able to battle the opioid epidemic as well as address the mental health needs in our state. But additionally to the budget, there's a couple of, um, or several bills around policy, around the Baker Act uh, and around um, and peers uh, that um, have been addressed legislatively, and that will go a long way towards um, uh, providers being able to meet this increase in demand because of the flexibility that that policy change will allow. And um, so that gives us an opportunity to address this from the policy end as well as from the budget perspective. As you're watching this, do you have hope that this stuff is going to make it through? We've got, you know, uh, just a couple more weeks left. That's right. We only have a few days left and our fingers are crossed. And we certainly hope that um, these bills will make it over the finish line. So um, we're cautiously optimistic. (laughs) One thing that stuck out to me, this was fascinating to me, that um, there was a lot of COVID-19 relief, uh, but behavioral health providers, you say, were only able to access about 3% of that $500 million in federal health and human services provider relief funds that came into Florida. Uh, That's a drop in the bucket. Uh, Something I never thought of, that that wasn't going in that direction. Um, absolutely. And, and so for the community provider, um, the majority of them, just about half, were only able to access about $200,000 each or less um, of that pot. And so for the total in Florida is about $16 million out of that $500 million that went to mental health and substance use providers. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, some, some relief is still, some help is still needed in that area. There's no doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're very grateful that that funding was available and that we were able to access it, certainly. Um, And we really, uh, you know, are are very thankful for the funding that's available in the current budget and, you know, the opportunity perhaps to increase that as we move forward. One final thing, and this is uh, sort of personal, but um, uh, we're a behavioral health professional family. Um, That's what my uh, wife has done for years and years and years. And her daughter, my stepdaughter, graduate got out of graduate graduate school and uh immediately started working in a kind of a critical care facility and then the pandemic happened and i didn't know if she was going to stay in the field after that experience (laughs) it was it was horrific for her so so stressful and i'm sure there are mental health practitioners all over the state of florida who wondered oh is this worth doing how are you going to convince more people to get into that pipeline that we need filled so badly 
Uh, well, that that is an, an amazing question. And first, I want to say, please tell your wife thank you and your daughter as well. We really appreciate their um, commitment to our space and, and to healthcare. And and you're right. This has been a really challenging time for the behavioral health providers, just from the the treatment staff on the ground all the way through the uh, the CEOs. Because, you know, we are facing the same anxieties and problems at home that we have to go to work and, and then have to you know, treat people that are coming in. And so there's, there's no escape and we're there. Um, one thing is, uh, you know, we offer internships for new graduates to come out and that gives them a chance to, to be mentored and to, um, to grow those professional skills um, in an environment that, that allows them to see um, a full continuum of clients, whether it be from young children all the way through the elderly. And so that's one of the benefits from being in the community is that you um, would have that opportunity. Um, and, and to that, too, there's been a, a, a policy bill and a compact bill, licensure bill that was passed by Senator Bruder's um, session, which we are very pleased to see that will, um, uh, that will give us some flexibility and licensure as we move forward as well. Um, but back to the community, we are, um, we're a safety net. We're there for whoever walks in the door, um, and you know, we're just a great place to work. Melanie Brown Wolfter with the Florida Behavioral Health Association. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Here's some of what's happening in Florida politics today. The House will take up a number of issues during a floor session, including a controversial proposal that would revamp a 2008 rule about what's known as net metering. That governs charges and credits between electric utilities and customers who have rooftop solar systems. The Senate will take up a number of bills during a floor session, too, including a proposal that would make a series of changes related to specialty license plates. The Senate Rules Committee will consider a number of issues, including a bill that addresses things like how race-related topics should be taught in public schools. This bill came after Governor Ron DeSantis and state education officials tried to bar the teaching of critical race theory. The House passed it on Thursday. The House Rules Committee meets 15 minutes after the House floor session today. The Senate Special Order Calendar Group will set a special order calendar, which will list bills to be heard on the Senate floor. Also, the Florida Public Service Commission will take up a series of issues, including a proposal by Tampa Electric to collect more money from customers starting in April because of higher-than-expected fuel costs for power plants. The utility wants to pass along an additional $165 million in costs. Utilities generally are allowed to collect fuel costs from customers and are not supposed to profit from those costs. Every year, the commission sets the amounts that utilities can collect for fuel in the following year. But if costs are higher than expected, utilities can seek what are known as mid-course corrections that allow them to increase the amounts that customers pay. For months now, the industry has been dealing with higher than expected natural gas prices. The Board of Trustees of the College of the Florida Keys will meet at the Key West campus today. And Senator Annette Tadeo of Miami will host a reception that's part of Columbia Day 2022 festivities. And finally... Former Democratic congressional candidate Adam Christensen ended his bid for Agriculture Commissioner on Friday, just one day after it began. So what kind of skeleton fell out of his closet so fast he had to withdraw? Well, none, actually. Turns out he was just too young to serve in the office. 
Turns out a candidate has to be at least 30 years old to be elected to a cabinet post in the state of Florida. Christensen is 28. He won't turn 30 until 11 months after this year's November general election. Just a reminder to always check the fine print. That's it for today's edition of Sunrise. I'm Craig Kopp. Join us again tomorrow as we do another daily dive into Florida politics.